0: Well, you're listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity today. We have a special guest on the podcast, and I will let him introduce himself. So welcome to the podcast, Drew.
1: Hey, Sean. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um. Yep. I'm I'm Drew Mary. Uh, some of you who uh, listen to Sean Cole may be somewhat familiar with me, uh, simply because I have interacted with uh, Leighton Flowers in the past, and that, of course, is why we are having having this podcast uh, today. Um, and just to give a little bit of information about myself, um, I blog at Reformed Baptist Daily dot uh, wordpress.com so people can go there and see some of my writings and we're actually going to be responding to a response of Layton Flowers to uh, a blog post that I wrote um, not too long ago. Um, but I, uh, I I graduated from Liberty University, uh, which may be somewhat of a surprise uh, to people if you know anything about Liberty University because it is uh, very strongly anti- Calvinistic um, when I first went there I actually knew nothing about Calvinism. Uh, so my first introduction to Calvinism uh, was of course purely purely negative and then uh, slowly but surely over time as I started uh, looking into the issues myself, um, I just I came to the realization that um, you know God is good and his word is good and I need not fear, whatever his word teaches. And, and once I, I came to that realization, and once I, I purposed in my heart to, to study the issues and to seek out answers, um, sure enough, over time, I became convinced of what is commonly called Calvinism. Um, and it didn't stop there. I, I short, shortly thereafter uh, realized that um, it's much broader than that. Reformed theology is much broader than the five points um so i you know eventually became convinced of uh, covenant theology as well and and having a high view of the church and worship and and so forth and um so i i seek to um glorify god glorify my savior and communicate his truth uh to edify the church um and i've I've actually had a a podcast in the past with my good friend, Dale Stenberg, and uh, that that podcast has been laying dormant for a little bit, but we are talking about possibly starting it up again. It's just that we're we're both really busy, Uh, but I am very thankful to be on uh, your show today.
0: Well, thanks, Drew. I really appreciate you being on the show, and and both of us, I think, have really tried to be uh, fair to Uh, traditional SBC theology, especially Leighton Flowers. I've interacted with Leighton over the past two or three years. We've done podcasts and debates together. We've had interactions. And I've really attempted to understand their theology, and and I think you have too. And I think this is not a personal attack against Leighton at all. What we're trying to do is just interact with a lot of the assertions, a lot of the presuppositions and conclusions that his theology... Uh, basically espouses. And uh, especially, you know, through his YouTube and Soteriology 101 podcast, uh, he's becoming more prolific and a lot more people are listening to him. And I think it's important for us to try to understand, you know, what is traditional SBC theology, especially in relationship to um, anthropology, the, the nature of man and mm-hmm. And especially in the nature of grace. And so I've always found the SBC traditional theology, especially that of Leighton Flowers, to be just a weird. Uh, animal unto itself. It's not Arminianism per se. Uh, it's something totally different. And so, uh, maybe just kind of talk about your interactions. What, basically, I've gone to your blog and you've had numerous blog posts responding to Leighton Flowers. What, what got you interested in, in specifically dealing with Leighton and his arguments and kind of how did that journey start for you?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question, and. Uh, Really, I, I guess the the way I first got introduced to Leighton Flowers is through James White. You know, I'm, I follow James White a lot. I listen to his dividing line. Um, and so, you know, the, the whole debate they had on on Romans 9 was, of course, a big introduction to uh, Leighton Flowers. Although prior to that, I had heard of him and I, and I think even interacted with him to some extent before that. Um uh so j- just coming to hear about him through facebook and and through the web uh seeing that he does have you know a a voice out there a a large influence um it seems like a large a large following and so you know naturally someone who you know believes in the doctrines of grace and um seeks to uh communicate them and defend them uh from a biblical perspective you know i saw this as a good opportunity of Seeking clarity and understanding, and to ultimately defend and proclaim uh, what I believe to be uh, biblical.
0: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and, and I, you know, obviously, I don't know if a lot of my listeners, I think most of them know that Dr. White was my apologetics professor. At seminary, and that's kind of when I first got introduced to him way back in 2000. So I've been listening listening to him for a long time. Um, Well, let's just go ahead and dive in and deal with some of the um, issues or, or, or problems that we have. And we're dealing specifically on this podcast with Leighton Flowers because both of us have. Interacted with his material, and, and especially Drew, he just had a a podcast devoted specifically to your post, where he you know dealt specifically with you. So I'm giving you an opportunity, maybe to rebut or to clarify or to push back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm gonna I'm just gonna kind of let you let you um let you loose on this to, <laughs> to give a lot of your uh, of your of your uh, theological and exegetical conclusions. But I guess the big issue is um, their understanding of the gospel. And the whole issue of, of prevenient grace, monergistic grace, um, just the role of the gospel in bringing a person to salvation. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from Leighton himself from his website. Um, he says, "We believe man has the capacity to respond willingly to God's means of seeking to save the lost. Not that man would seek God if left alone. He's trying to, I guess, preclude any type of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism with that statement, but In his view, God is working through creation, conscience, the church, the Holy Spirit, the word to aid humanity in their conversion. And basically, in his view, God aids or assists men with the gospel proclamation, or as he likes to say, the gospel appeal. And he sees that gospel appeal in the Holy Spirit-inspired word, to be not only necessary for a person coming to faith, but also sufficient. Um, and he'll talk about this extra grace that's not needed. Um, he called it like, I think, sprinkling of fairy dust or some mystical, mm-hmm. what we would call you know, monergistic regeneration. Um, he be- categorically denies, and I think it's because he denies total inability. And so let's just kind of st- start with that whole idea. W- what is his view of regeneration, of grace, the power of the gospel? In your understanding, what's he trying to attempt to say is necessary for a person to come to faith in Christ?
1: Yeah, and and, and that really is is the main question here. And of course, the, the article I wrote was specifically in response to um, Layton's claim of the the enabling power of the gospel. And you know, we just kind of spoke about. The idea of seeking clarity, of clarification, of understanding the the traditionalists, and making sure they understand the the Calvinist perspective as well. And to answer your question, I have to say that uh, I think Layton needs to clarify his terminology here. I don't think he's done the best job at it, or at least I have haven't yet come across uh, perhaps an article he may have written that just really uh, makes it crystal clear, because when he talks about well he uses the term enable or enabling the enabling power of the gospel however when you kind of pull everything back when you, when you get down to the nitty gritty of of what uh Layton is flat, of what Layton is saying uh in my conclusion the whole idea of enabling is absent from what he's really saying uh in other words what he's truly talking about is not an enabling concept, but an informative concept. And, and I think you really um, touched on this. Um, I, you've said before that uh, the inability to respond, from Leighton's perspective, the inability to respond is not due to sin or moral inability, but due to lack of gospel information. And I think Flowers actually confirms that conclusion in his response. Where where he brings up the illustration, the several illustrations of um, a grocery list, a, a history a right. textbook, a a news infomercial. You know, if 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 right. we as sinners can you know see this grocery list and and. You know, believe it and act on it. To go to the grocery store and get what's get what's on there, or to hear an infomercial and believe what it says and to act on it. Then, then why can't we believe the gospel with with the information of the gospel message and act on it? And in my opinion, that is a complete uh, confusion of categories. <laughs> um, the the yes. gospel is not a matter. Um, of, uh, it's not a grocery list. It's not a history textbook. It, it it pertains to spiritual things, things of God. And I think as we get into some scriptures, we'll see the significance of this, um, especially in First Corinthians 2, if we get there. And that is that Spiritual things, the things that are of God are spiritually discerned or spiritually appraised. And so from our perspective, since, since we believe that the scriptures teach that man is uh, totally depraved and, and, and we believe in the doctrine of total inability, uh, that is because there Man is corrupt to the core to the heart as as Jesus says in matthew seven twenty one through twenty four that from within from the heart f- flow um, adulteries and fornications and murders and thefts and evil desires, and he comes up with this long list of sins um, that man fundamentally speaking is hostile to God, man is. Okay. Uh, mankind is in enmity with god they hate god they they suppress the knowledge of god in their unrighteousness and therefore that that's why the whole grocery list history textbook illustration uh, simply doesn't doesn't work
0: right and and basically too what we're saying is that you know the information is not conversion um, I think there's a truncated or a misunderstanding of what conversion is. You know, conversion, I guess if you were to take an analogy, means assenting to the truth of what the gospel says. And that's not a conversion. A conversion is actually a change of nature where the Holy Spirit grants us repentance and faith so that we can come to Christ, not just to cognitively or intellectually believe what the Bible teaches. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think the term enabling assumes in that word that there was an inability before. Right. And so when when Leighton says, you know, it enables a response, and I've pushed back with him before, well, what was the inability mm-hmm. before? His definition of inability is not the same as our definition. Our definition of inability is spiritual and moral mm-hmm. inability due to the fall that we've inherited from Adam, the, the things that you, that you mentioned. His definition of inability is that we just haven't had the gospel presented to us we haven't heard. And he goes back to Romans 10. How can they hear without somebody preaching? Mm-hmm. And so the inability is not spiritual or moral. The inability is that we just haven't had a chance to hear it. Once we hear it, then we have the ability to use our libertarian free will to accept it, which means that before the gospel even came to us, we, we still had some innate ability morally to believe it. So it's very confusing when he uses the word enabling grace. I think it's very right.
1: and and, and- in light of that, I have to wonder, where is the, the power in the gospel from Leighton's per, uh, perspective? Where is the need for power if what Leighton says is true? Like, I, I wondered, does he think that the power is in the words themselves, as, much like you know, a moving speech that someone may give? Man, that was a powerful message. Because um, from our perspective, we believe that the power of the gospel is— First of all, in the fact that when Christ died on the cross, he actually accomplished redemption. That is, he actually propitiated the sins of his people. Um, And in that subsequently the Holy Spirit then applies that which Christ has accomplished. And so when the gospel goes out into the world, the gospel or evangelism is the means by which the Holy Spirit uh, convicts and convinces and regenerates and gives life into God's people, all those for whom Christ has died. And so, and so we see it from the perspective of um, the gospel being triune, and each person of the Trinity is is in harmony with mm-hmm. one another in the accomplishment of redemption. Uh, much like we've seen in Ephesians um, one, and I think there's actually strong parallels um, in John six, and I think we're going to take a look at that. Um, but in yeah. Ephesians one, you see the Father chooses, and then the Holy, and then Jesus comes and He dies for all those whom God has chosen. He He is their substitutionary sacrifice, and then the Holy Spirit. Uh, comes and and seals all those for whom God the Father has chosen and and the Son has died for, therefore being the guarantee of our inheritance.
0: And again, I think that's a great point, the triune nature of God's um, salvation of His people. There's no division or disunity among the three persons of the Trinity. They all work in concert to bring about the full redemption of the elect people. Uh, one of the things, I think you had a, maybe it was a Facebook or you had some type of conversation with Leighton where you asked him some mm-hmm. questions. And his response basically was, we are deficient, we're sick, we need a physician, the gospel is his means to make the p- that, that appeal for healing and reconciliation. Those types of terminology, and, I, and I'm going to throw out <laughs> the boogeyman, <laughs> the yeah. boogeyman word, boogeyman, <laughs> a semi-Pelagianism. Does not the language, we're deficient, we're sick, does that not sound like? And I'm not accusing him of semi-Pelagianism. I've told Leighton this before. I said, you at least believe in some prior work of grace. It's not the Arminian, provenient grace. It's not the Calvinistic, irresistible grace. It's the gospel by itself as grace coming before. So, you know, I guess technically it's not semi-Pelagianism. But I'm going to ask you this question. I'll put you on the hot spot. Do you believe... Leighton Flowers and, and and you you told a joke earlier. Why don't you tell the joke <laughs> that, that you told me earlier? Uh, okay. Setup, well, and, um,
1: um, what what do you call someone who is a follower of Leighton Flowers?
0: A I florist. have no idea. <laughs> so you got Calvinists, and Arminians, and yep. florists. So, so is is Leighton Flowers and the the florists? And we're yeah. I know we're poking fun. I'm sure i will find us. And, and Leighton, if, yeah. if you end up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure he will. And and, and you know, Layton, that we're we're doing this because we, you know, we we respect you. We're just trying to interact with your ideas. But let me just ask you, Drew, would you consider his view, your interaction with him, his writings, semi Pelagian?
1: You know that that's a really good question. And um, you know, I have had some people say, you know, accuse um, Leighton Flowers of. You know believing heresy and you know I should just write him off as a heretic and you know and I've said until I hear him ex- explicitly come out and say I believe this heretical teaching you know i'm not I'm not gonna assign hereti- heretical ideas to him not that semi sorry semi plagianism is necessarily heresy I think there's certain flavors of it that are um, but it if if Leighton Flowers is not a semi-Pelagian right now, uh, I do believe that if he continues where he's going, if he's consistent with his uh, theological perspective, um, I, think, I think that's
0: where he has to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because historically, Calvinists and Arminians both affirm total depravity and total inability. I mean, that's that's indisputable. I mean, you can go back and read the Remonstrants. You can go back and read um, Arminius himself and even John Wesley, and they all, classical Arminians, do believe in total depravity and total ability. Now, their answer is different than our answer. Their answer is, you know, God overcomes that deadness, that that moral inability through prevenient grace that's given to all people, and it basically puts you back in a state of you know renewing that libertarian free will that Adam lost and it's more of an assisting grace that you can cooperate with or you can resist it's not it's not monergistic grace but it you know I I can't remember who it was but there was I think there was one writer I think he was an arminian that said there's a hair's breadth difference between calvinists and arminians when it comes to the nature of man and the bondage of the will and so you know we would affirm along with arminians that there is spiritual deadness there's moral inability there has to be some type of holy spirit work of grace to overcome that depraved condition our answer is you know monergistic regeneration irresistible grace their answer is prevenient grace but layton and others in his camp have a different answer mm-hmm. they they almost seem to take the role of the internal working of the holy spirit doing some type of work of grace Out of the equation and just put it into the actual scripture or gospel appeal itself, being the only grace. Yeah, yeah, I think you're
1: right. And honestly, you know, you you kind of you brought up the term bondage, the bondage of the will, and I really don't get a sense from from uh, flowers that he really embraces any kind of idea of man being in bondage or enslaved, even though in scripture it's explicit that. You know, it talks about um, us being enslaved to to Satan to do His will, as we've seen in uh, Second Timothy, for example. And so, there's clear examples of us yeah. being enslaved and in bondage, and the implication of that, and explicit uh, in certain places, like like I just mentioned, Second Timothy uh, 2, We do the will of. The devil of satan so it's not like this idea of you know we're enslaved to satan but at the same time we can desire to love god to to believe in god repent and 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 have faith no we're doing the will of 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 satan and jesus actually tells the pharisees your father is satan therefore you you do um you do as your father does um so in, in scripture, we clearly see the idea of the bondage of the will or the will being enslaved to sin in the, t- the the following teaching of that is that we do that which is contrary to God. So our thoughts are contrary to God. Our, our speech is contrary to God. Our actions, it, they are contrary to God. That's why man suppresses the knowledge of God. I, I love... um 2 Timothy chapter 10 uh, where Paul talks about he he gives us imagery of kind of this uh, like it's this warfare imagery and it's, it's and it's almost like there's a, there's a castle, you know, a stronghold. And we we Christians, we're not on the defensive, we're on the offense, on the offensive. And he says that that we're tearing down lofty speculations set up against what? the knowledge of God. So so uh a a um a stronghold is kind of like a a last resort you know place that you go as as a last resort of defense and uh, so really what Paul is doing there is he's communicating the power of the gospel and destroying these lofty speculations set up against the knowledge of God. Well, why is why is man setting up these lofty opinions against the knowledge of God? Well, very very clearly because they're enslaved in their sin and they hate God. They're enemies of God. They're hostile to God. They don't want to
0: come to God. Right. and I, and I, and those are some great great examples and and I think it comes down to you know what do the traditional southern baptists actually believe about the fundamental nature of a lost person because I've even heard Layton you know talk about Romans chapter 1 where only certain mm-hmm. people suppress the truth uh, they choose to suppress that truth when presented with the truth and I would push back and say well why do they suppress that it's because of their nature and so I think that in, in order to protect this precious doctrine of libertarian free will, they have to—I mm-hmm. mean—categorically deny total inability, or bondage to sin, or, or slavery to sin, which I think the Scripture clearly teaches. And so, I think we're we're coming down to a fundamental difference in understanding the nature of a lost person
1: right and and this um and i really want to quickly touch on this because this brings us you know what we're talking about really is the uh the moral inability of man in in contrast to the the physical inability and um flowers really um kind of jumped on me in um in his response and i I think wrongfully um, i still stand by what i by what i said um but he, um, he thinks that his use of an analogy representing which, which, um, consists of a, a physical, a physical inability is an accurate analogy that represents moral inability. And I stand by my words that, um, he's wrong. It's, it's a false analogy. Um, Flowers seems to have the idea that uh, there's no such thing as false analogies, only inadequate analogies. And, um, and, and I want to push back a little bit on this, um, kind of re- reverse it. Can a a moral, an, an, an analogy that consists of a moral inability, can that be used to represent a physical inability? I think the answer is pretty obvious. Uh, no, it, it can't. Well, it goes the same way. And so when when Flowers uses his analogies that uh, that include a physical inability. Um, What he's doing is he's misrepresenting the Calvinist position and really in his analogy, and I'll just kind of quickly provide it in case people aren't familiar what the analogy is. um, He uses the the analogy of a, a dog owner beating his dog or sorry, a dog owner beating his deaf dog because it doesn't obey his commands. And the problem with this is of course, the dog is, is deaf and so it can't hear the commands and therefore it can't obey. And, and so the dog, you know, the dog doesn't know why its owners is beating it. Um, and, and the fundamental problem with this analogy too, is that it makes God out to be cruel and unjust because obviously we would think that a, a dog, an owner beating its deaf dog because it doesn't obey its commands is a cruel person and an unjust person. Um, and so my pushback on that was I actually actually provided a corrected analogy that would actually represent um, or at least better represent um, moral inability. And he, he didn't even read that in his response, which I was kind of disappointed of. Um, but just to quickly give my corrected analogy, what I said is, Instead, a moral inability illustration would involve a dog who can hear just fine and who knows better, but continually disobeys his master anyways due to an innate dislike of the master or of humans in general. And actually, I might go back and edit this because I would actually add something. I I would make the dog a rabid dog, a dog who has rabies to communicate uh, that idea of the corruption of sin. That would be a more accurate analogy of moral inability. And so I just want to, again, encourage Flowers to stop using these silly analogies that actually represent uh, physical inability and make God out to look cruel and unjust because that in in no way is our position.
0: Right. And also in his analogy, the dog is neutral. I mean, the dog is basically born with a physical disability, and it's almost like in that analogy, it doesn't take into consideration the deadness of and the rebellion of a, a sinner against his creator. It's almost as if the dog is just you know, neutral against its owner, um, and that's not the exactly, picture of exactly. humans at all. We're not neutral. Um, we're not just incapacitated. <clears throat> we're not just sick or weak. We're dead. And that deadness renders us, like you said, Colossians talks about us being hostile in mind. Um, Romans 8 talks about, you know, no one in the flesh can please God or submit to God's law. And so the, the human condition is not one of neutrality. It, it's one of suppressing the truth and ungodliness because our nature is in rebellion against our creator. Um, and I think that's lost in a lot of these analogies. Right. So, are you ready to start exploring some text, or do you have anything else you want to say about um, the analogies, or anything else you want to say before we move on to looking at some text?
1: No, I'm a, I'm ready to to look at some text.
0: Okay, well let's let's first of all let's stick in the Gospel of John just to begin with, and, and I know on the most recent podcast, um, Leighton Flowers brought up John twenty thirty through thirty one, and basically said that's never been addressed. You didn't address it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he said made a, may, maybe made a categorical statement that no Calvinist has ever been able to, to, to give an answer to him on that. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, let's address John 20, 30 through 31. And so, um, you know, if you, if you're, if you're listening and you've got a Bible, um, let me just read this, um, John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's just talk about this. First of all, just chronologically, where does John 20 fit in the gospel of John? Is it at the beginning or is it at the end? I think the end. (laughs) Okay, So, you have to just say contextually in the Gospel of John, he, in his writing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been building a case. He's been laying forth the teachings of Christ uh, to, to get to this point. And so you can't just have this standalone statement without the full teaching of everything that's gone before in the Gospel of John. And so we have to truly understand that in order to understand John 20, 31, you got to also understand... Everything that's come up to that point in the gospel, um, and, and of course, you know, there's an exegetical question on this passage of scripture. Uh, there's a textual variant that many scholars and commentators throughout the years have argued: is you know, is John writing to Christians to encourage them to continue believing, or is John writing primarily to non-Christians to encourage them to start believing? You know, we can get into the weeds of whether it's a present subjunctive or aorist subjunctive. In the bottom line, I don't think it really matters in the grand scheme of things which one you take uh, because ultimately anybody that's going to be saved has to believe in Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life. Um, But here's the question, okay? So I don't think the the Greek grammar there helps uh, the traditionalist argument either way, but here's their argument. I think this is what Leighton would say is that in the traditionalist argument, the Gospel of John was written to enable a response of belief. Is that how you would understand him using that passage of scripture?
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely. I think that's essentially what what he communicated um, in his response. Because, I mean, that's what it's all about is the enabling power of the gospel. And again, his definition of enabling would not be our definition, but uh, his definition would be the idea of providing information, providing uh, the knowledge of the gospel uh, so that people know what to respond to. And so I see no other way of him of how he would understand that.
0: Yeah, And I'm sure if Layton listens to this, he's going to push back every time we use the word information Mm -hmm. because he says, guys, it's not just information. It's Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. grace. It's a gracious appeal. And so, okay, we'll give him that. It is a gracious appeal. It is Holy Spirit inspired scripture. We're not arguing. I don't think we're arguing the sufficiency of the scripture or the sufficiency of the message. What we're arguing is the inability of humans to respond to that. Um, so I, mean, I, think, I think we could both agree that the message itself is um, powerful. It is Holy Spirit inspired. It is sufficient um, in and of itself. The question is, what is the condition of man that renders him incapable of responding to that? Um, I think that's where the rub is on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so let's think about the entire context of John. I mean, you've got John chapter one, you got John chapter three, you got John six, you got John ten, you got John seventeen, and uh, I mean we're not going to go into detail into a lot of these passages of scripture. Maybe we'll spend some time in John chapter six because I think that um, John Layton's understanding of John chapter six is fundamentally different than anything I've ever read or come across, um, and his his hermeneutical understanding of that is is very different. I, I don't know if you want to say anything about that or, or how we want to go on this. Um, if, if we want to deal with John 20, 21 or ch- John 20, um, you know, 21 and then or 31.
1: Um, I, I think I think you've had a lot of interaction with um, Layton Flowers regarding uh, the idea of uh, judicial punishment um, or sorry, judicial mm-hmm. hardening. And that really is, um, I mean, we, I'll touch a little bit on it. Um, you know, I just recently read through his book, uh, "The Potter's Promise," and from what I've noticed, not only in that book but articles he's written and his podcast, is his whole approach to interpreting Scripture is fundamentally different than what our approach is. And mm-hmm. I'm sure a whole whole disagree with this, but. I think it's pretty av- it's pretty obvious, it's pretty evident if you just read his book, listen to his podcast, read his articles, and essentially what he does is he'll, he'll look at the text in question, and then before addressing the text in question, he bounces around to all these other texts, formulates his uh, judicial hardening framework, and then overlays that on the text in question, and then that becomes his interpretive grid, and then everything in that passage. Has to be understood in such a way that it fits into his um, judicial hardening uh, grid, and that's I've seen him do that with with John six. I've seen him do that with uh, the Exodus um, and and you know other passages. And uh, so our approach, on the other hand, is okay. Let's look at John six in the context of John's gospel. You know, for the not only the immediate. Context of John six, but John's gospel as a as a whole, and and flesh those things out. Let's look at the explicit terminology used in John's gospel and in John six, and the in the flow of argument. And I don't see Leighton Flowers taking that approach. He he, it's almost like backwards. You know, he has his conclusion, his framework, and then he reads the text uh, from that perspective.
0: Yeah, and I would agree with that. That's it's it's very well said. I think there's two big hermeneutical um, principles for Leighton. One is the messianic secret that he talks about, and that's related to judicial hardening. And those two frameworks really color almost every every way he reads these passages of Scripture. Um, well, let's just deal with John uh, 20, uh, 31, And let's just see if we can understand basically what their argument is from that. I think what Leighton and others would say is that the gospel that was written, the gospel of John, is in and of itself sufficient to enable a person to believe, and once that person is given the truth, they have the libertarian free will to believe it or to suppress it, if they do believe it, then subsequently, as a result of their belief, then they are regenerated, i.e., their understanding of that you by believing may have life in His name. Um, so, I think there's you know three different ways that they come to this conclusion. Um, you know, the gospel is sufficient, Holy Spirit inspired truth to enable a response. Number two, sinners can believe, they have the ability to believe when they are given this truth. And number three, um, this belief um, results in regeneration, uh, not regeneration preceding faith. Am I understanding their conclusion of how they would understand that passage of Scripture?
1: Uh, yep, yeah, I, I would agree. And um, I, I would just simply add that um, the traditionalists. Uh, understanding the traditionalist conclusion, especially as expressed by uh, Leighton Flowers, is what it requires is a less than biblical uh, definition of the the sinful nature of man, um, at least from our perspective. Obviously, he wouldn't say, well, I, I believe in a less than biblical you know, view of, of man. Um, but from our perspective, uh, Flowers' understanding of the sinful nature of man is not sinful enough. It's it's not biblical enough. And that's why he believes that merely presenting the sinner with the gospel is enough for the person to repent and believe. Whereas we would say, uh, no, apart from the gracious work of God, uh, working in in that person to bring them life, regenerating life about apart from the Holy Spirit, convicting them and humbling them and giving them understanding, apart from them being taught by the Father, as we see in John 6. And again, we see these strong parallels in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. And uh, hopefully maybe we'll we'll get to that as well. Um, apart from that, man, the sinner will continue to uh, kick against the goad, so to speak. They'll, they'll continue to hate God and hate his truth and believe the lie
0: rather than the truth. Mm-hmm. Very good. So has John, from the very beginning, chapter 1 through chapter 20, has, has John himself, and through the words of Jesus, taught that there has to be some type of monergistic regeneration? Um, Yes, And does he talk about the deadness of man? Yes. And and I think one of the things that Leighton does is I think he conflates regeneration with eternal life Mm -hmm. as if they're the same thing. Whereas when John uses the term life, you may have life in his name. I think he's talking more about eternal life separate from, I mean, you know, coordinating with, but but separate or distinct from the actual work of regeneration in the life of a spiritually dead sinner to bring them to life. I think that they're not necessarily the same thing. They're, they're linked together, but regeneration is distinct from eternal life, although they're intrinsically tied together. Would you agree with that?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely I would. And um, I th- this idea of um, understanding proper distinctions, I just kind of maybe a bit of a side note here. Um, John 1, 12 and 13, you know, we believe this is a, a strong passage in support of the Reformed perspective of soteriology. Mm-hmm. And I just want to uh, briefly comment on that. I, I've, I think there's a lot of confusion on both sides regarding this text. I think there's a failure of many to properly distinguish what John is communicating here. And so what I would say is, well, first let me read it. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so a lot of people, what they do, they look at verse 12 and they assume that it's speaking about regeneration. And I would disagree with that. It says children of God which is not regeneration but adoption. So verse 12 exactly. is is John is communicating adoption and then in verse 13 John gives further explanation as to how this was this adoption was brought about and that's where he introduces regeneration where he says who were born of God that's
0: regeneration. Exactly. So, the regeneration is what actually results in the faith that a person exercises so as to be adopted. Right. Regeneration comes first. And so, in that text, verse 13 is an explanation about how the adoption comes about. Is that what you're arguing? Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, it really comes down to um, properly understanding the, the ordo salutis or the order of salvation,
0: Well, let's look at let's let's dive into John six. But but before we do that, I just want to show a parallel passage in First John. Obviously, the same gospel writer of John wrote First John, and and he ends First John almost the same way that he ends the Gospel of John with this statement. In First John five thirteen, he says, "I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of the of God, that you may know that you have eternal life." Almost the same wording there. Um, life in His name in John twenty, eternal life in First John five thirteen. So I think that he's not. John's burden is not to argue that if you read his gospel, you have the libertarian free will to accept it or reject it because it is Holy Spirit inspired truth, and you have the ability. I think he's just making a statement that when you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Um, I don't think it's anything much deeper than that. I think you have to go into John chapter three, especially John chapter six, to understand moral moral inability. And so let's just dive into John chapter six, okay. and um, you know, obviously, you know, we could spend a month of Sundays <laughs> talking about all of the, the the intricacies in here. But I mean, obviously, you know, we go to John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. I mean, grammatically there, no one can come. It's the Greek word dunamis, which means power. No one has the power, no one has the inherent ability to come to believe in Jesus with the condition, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there has to be a drawing, and the question is, is it an effectual drawing? Um, But you know, the Arminian will come to this verse basically with an Arminian perspective saying, you know, God draws everyone. It's a pervenient grace type of drawing. You can resist the drawing. Uh, Leighton doesn't argue that. Leighton has this view that this is part of the Messianic secret. The Jews that Jesus was preaching to that had been fed, you know, the 5,000, they were being judicially hardened. And so when Jesus came down from heaven, he was only entrusting himself to the 12. And that John 6 really has nothing to do with... um, the, the the moral inability of man; it's more of the judicial hardening of the Jews, and that's why they weren't able to come. Right? Have you heard? Have you have you dealt with him on these issues before? Maybe uh,
1: not. Not specifically. No, no, I haven't. Um, I don't think we've gone back and forth specifically on this, at least not in uh, any great uh, deal or extent.
0: Um, but I'm familiar with, <laughs> with his position of it, at least. So, in the text in John six, is there any indication at all that these are hardened, judicially hardened Jews who had grown calloused over time, and they were rejecting their Messiah because of judicial hardening. Is there anything in John 6 that lends itself to understand that interpretation?
1: (laughs) Well, I I think the proof that there isn't is the fact that uh, right from the start, when Layton approaches this passage, he doesn't what he does is he jumps out of John Six, not only does he jump out of John six, he jumps out of John and and goes right. to other passages and develops uh, his you know his theory his concept his framework, and then he comes back to John Six and tries to make everything fit into that framework so I would say if uh, Leighton's perspective was right about John six. He wouldn't have to go through the whole gymnastics there of of establishing a framework by which to uh, interpret uh, John six.
0: Yeah, I think he I think he goes to the end of Acts where Paul is before I can't you know, remember he to Acts, you know he goes uh, Acts ten it. with Cornelius I think. Yeah, he does Acts ten with Cornelius, mm-hmm. but he also really goes back. I think it's is it Acts he goes back to the end of Acts yeah. Where, yeah where Paul talks about they'd become you know had they. You know, they, If they weren't blinded, they would have listened. And, and that whole idea of judicial hardening, he imports back into John. These Jews that are here that um, are learning from Jesus, are being taught by Jesus, have just been fed by Jesus, nowhere in the text does it say they were judicially hardened. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, the, the key interpretive, interpretive text to understanding the whole thing is um, verse... Thirty-six. Jesus, right after he says, "I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst." 30, verse thirty-six. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. There is a present, active, not believing. They're seeing the miracles. They've they they've you know been around Jesus. They have heard his teaching, but they're choosing not to believe. Mm-hmm. Not that they have been judicially hardened. It doesn't say anything about that. Not that they've grown calloused. It's just they're not believing in their Messiah. And then Jesus goes on to explain why they're not believing. And mm-hmm. the bottom line answer is the reason they're not believing is because they're not elect. They weren't given to Jesus by the Father. That's why they're not believing.
1: Right. and And I would, and I would add that I, I think there's a consistent theme here throughout the Gospel of John. And I think uh, the Apostle Paul actually brings this. Uh, Concept up in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, and that is the idea of uh, the things of God being spiritually discerned or or appraised. And we see this other places in John, for example, uh, with Nicodemus. You know, Jesus is communicating spiritual truth, and all Nicodemus can think about is physical birth. And then you see the same thing with the uh, Samaritan woman. Jesus is communicating spiritual truth and she thinks he's talking about actual water. And so you see these encounters that Jesus has throughout the gospel of John where he's communicating spiritual truth and the people don't get it. They don't understand it. And I think that's really what the heart of John 6 is about is that uh, you must be taught by the father And that's, uh, I think you quoted verse 44 already, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. I think in verse 45, Jesus provides a further clarification of uh, what he means by um, the Father drawing these people to himself or giving these people to Jesus, and that is... It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And this, of course, is um, a promise given um, regarding the, the new covenant, as we see in uh, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. And all of that, if you go back to Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant, that's a monergistic work of God. It's God who's doing all of these things. It's God who's taking these people, he's putting his, his law in their hearts so, so that they'll walk in his ways and, uh, and he'll forgive them of their sins and he teaches them. That all of them will, will know the Father and uh we see this i same idea of the necessity of being taught by god that is uh, to to be given a true knowledge or understanding of these things in first corinthians 2 and if we have time we'll get there and we can look at that uh, uh more closely
0: yeah let's let, let's do that let's do that but let me just let me let me piggyback on that because the the reason that they are not able to come is because of spiritual deadness. In the drawing, God does also teach, and God does impart spiritual truth. God opens blind eyes. God does this monergistic work of regeneration to draw and to bring these sinners, the elect, to Christ. And, and one of the things that I think that Leighton said on that last podcast was— um, You know, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then he goes down to uh, verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. His definition of granting is a whole lot different than our definition of granting. How does he define granting? Well,
1: he he basically defines it um, from his uh, understanding of enabled. So, lest the Father enables or allows.
0: You know, allows the opportunity. Right. Allow, I mean, and, and oftentimes that Greek word didomai, grant, God grants repentance. God grants the coming. And when God grants something, he's not granting an opportunity, he's not granting a potentiality, he's not granting an enabling. He's actually granting the actual thing that he's granting. Um, And so if God grants that or God gives that, that means it's going to happen. That means the person is going to come. It is monergistic. It is effectual. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. where we differ on this. You know, in his view, it's not effectual. It's not irresistible. It's more an opportunity. You can take it or leave it when God presents you that that giving. You know, he's given you permission. He's given you the ability. He's enabling. You can take it or leave it. And again, it goes back to the nature of, you know, the person that's in bondage to sin.
1: Right. And, and just to, uh, I'll provide a, a quick comment on John 6, uh, 63 through 65, and then make one other other uh, point. Uh, but regarding John 6, 63 through 65, this will be my understanding, just to drive this home, is that what Jesus is communicating um, is that no one can come to Him unless it is granted by the Father, that is, the Father gives them to the Son, because it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh is no help at all. So the words of Christ mm-hmm. are Spirit and Life and therefore they must be spiritually appraised or discerned. I think that's the only way of properly understanding Jesus's words here, and that and that really is a an effectual work that is taking place here, not a mere um, allowing or enabling in the uh, flowers uh, sense of the of the word.
0: Yeah, it gives actual life. It Mm -hmm. gives the coming. It gives the faith. It gives the repentance. It doesn't just give the opportunity. Um, And and I guess one of the things that I I guess is a really huge difference between our view and other non-Calvinistic views is almost in every non-Calvinistic view, everything is a potentiality. Everything's, it's available, it's potential, it's there for you, uh, you've got the free will, you can choose it whether you want to, you know, choose it or not choose it. Um, There's nothing ever efficacious, there's nothing ever monergistic. There's nothing ever where God actually accomplishes something. It's more potential available, and, and I think that that's a big difference between our views.
1: Yeah, I really think it does um, belittle the the uh, redemptive purpose of God and the glory of God in salvation. Uh, really, to the point, and I, and I know flowers would deny this, but I, I think if, if consistent, it really does uh, open up the um, av- the. Um, the door for man to really boast in in their salvation. And I think we'll touch on that a little in in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 1 and 2. But um, just before we we transfer over there, one of the fundamental flaws I see in uh, Flowers and Leighton's interpretation of John 6 is from his framework of the Messianic secret and judicial hardening. um, His view is that uh, these people are given to Jesus, and he's specifically referring to the apostles here. They're given uh, for the for the purpose of, of service or ministry, that is to proclaim the gospel uh, after his ascension. However, if we just take Jesus on his word for what he says in John 6, he says that all that are given to him, he will raise up on the last day. They will have eternal life. So Jesus's emphasis is... Is not that they're given for service, but that they're given unto salvation. So the emphasis throughout John 6
0: is that of salvation. Exactly. It's nowhere in that text does it say anything about being elected or given to service or to go preach the gospel. Those things are true. The apostles were you know, ordained to do that, but in John six, everything is about coming. It's about you know eating his flesh, which is a metaphor for coming and taking mm-hmm. in all of Christ by faith, um, coming to faith, receiving Christ. It's all salvific. It, it it really has nothing to do with being elected or chosen or drawn for service. Um, and so that I think that is imported into the text as well. Yep. Well, let's go to First Corinthians two fourteen. Which is another passage of scripture that um, the traditional Southern Baptists push back against the Calvinistic view and say, you know, this is not really talking about total inability. This is not talking about the Holy Spirit having to do a work. Uh, this is, this is not what you think it is. So, um, you know, First Corinthians two fourteen is in a flow of thought that goes all the way back to First Corinthians chapter right. one. So it's not in a, a vacuum. Um, and I think Leighton would say this has nothing to do with being called or chosen or anything related to monergistic uh, regeneration. It has to do with whether a person accepts the wisdom of the world or accepts the wisdom of God. Halfway true, but you can't get away from the fact that in verses 26 through 31, it's all about election. It's all about effectual calling. It's all about God saving his elect, so they won't boast because he sovereignly chose them. So, I mean, you, it's all about calling an election and why certain people receive the message of Christ as foolish, whereas others receive the message of Christ as the glory and wisdom of God, mm-hmm. um, it has to do with the work that God has done in calling them to himself.
1: Right. Exactly. And, uh, one of the things I would say is, um, listening to uh, Flowers' response, one of the things I noticed in his response is essentially what, what he did is he set up a false dichotomy. Um, you know, he, he, yes. he said that what uh, First Corinthians is dealing with here is a contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. It's not dealing with inability of, of man. And that, that's a false dichotomy. It's, it's both. Um, both yeah. are, are, are true and, and both go uh, hand in hand. And so something Leighton Flowers has said is, and and I'm quoting here, um, if you rest on human wisdom, and this, I believe I took this from his response, if you rest on human wisdom, you'll find this foolish. If you rest on divine wisdom, you'll find this truthful. Now, my response to that would be that Paul's point is that man does not rest on divine wisdom. That's why they find it a stumbling block in foolishness. But as he says, to the called, it is the wisdom in the power of God. And so to ask the question, why do some Jews and some Gentiles not view the gospel as a stumbling block in foolishness? Well, according to to Flowers, as as I understand him saying, it's because of their libertarian free will. However, if we just look at what Paul explicitly says, Paul says it's a it's because of God's electing grace, as they as he says mm. in uh, verses twenty three and twenty four. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, but to those who are called. So there's a a, a, a group. Called the the elect, the called, the chosen within these categories of Jew and Gentile, both Jews and Greeks, exactly. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then just to Paul just drills this home by continuing on, he says, God chose what is foolish, God chose what is weak in the world, God chose what is low and despised in the world. And because of him, or as a Nasby puts it, I think. It is of his doing that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So Paul just drives home this idea of our salvation completely being uh, of God's electing grace.
0: Yeah, and if you if if you were given the gospel. And that was information that you needed in order to make a libertarian free will response. And you responded positively to that in and of yourself because of your free will. Then you have reason to boast over the person that suppressed that truth and unrighteousness because either they weren't spiritually in tune. Um, they didn't have as much information as you. Um, so, you know, when you, when you base it off libertarian free will, there's always some room to boast because you did something that somebody else didn't do that got you in to salvation. Whereas Paul's burden, as, you, as you've said here, is to show that from first to last, God has chosen a people, God has actually called those people, God has saved those people, it's all of his doing, and as a result, we can't boast at all in that, because God has monergistically done that for his elect.
1: Right, exactly. So um, just to follow up on that, uh, I would say that in chapter one, what Paul has done is he's already established the idea of the moral inability of man uh, that apart from God's electing grace, um, man will continue to view the the wisdom and power of the gospel as foolishness and a stumbling block. And then I, th- I think this is just uh, further uh, confirms this this uh, understanding in chapter two where Paul says basically and and that's why I came to you uh seeking to know nothing uh than Jesus Christ and him crucified I came to you in in fear and trembling I didn't come to you with with lofty uh speech and wisdom because I wanted your faith to be to rest not in the wisdom of man which he's just talked about but in the power of God and so we ask ourselves okay what what is this power of God Well, it's what he just explained in chapter one, the electing grace of God. God chose you. God chose you. God chose you. And then, and I think uh, this is further illustrated um, or clarified in verses 10 and 14, which I think have um, strong parallels to what we just looked at in John six, verse 10 says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 14: The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, again, there's that idea of we need to be taught by God. God needs to miraculously, powerfully, graciously communicate these things to us, uh, give us understanding. Of these things, because in our fallen state, we can't comprehend them. We can't understand them.
0: Exactly. And that's why, back up in chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about it's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Um, and and that spirit and power is what you said, all the things that happened back in chapter one, the calling, the effectual calling, the choosing, um, all of God's salvation. Um, I've had conversations with Leighton in the past where he would say that the demonstration of the spirit and power is not a Holy Spirit, monergistic, irresistible, regenerating grace. It's simply the message. The message itself is a demonstration of power. Um, going back to the information, once the gospel's preached, there's the power, mm-hmm. um, and so some people receive it because they use their free will to not see it as foolish. Others suppress the truth; they don't receive it, and so there has to be no uh, mystical um, sprinkling on the top, fairy dust <laughs> type of what he would say, uh, you know, spiritual work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart and mind to overcome. Uh, that deadness, and so again, he reinterprets what a demonstration of the spirit and power is for him. It's mainly, you know, the appeal itself, the, the gospel appeal, um, not the actual, you know, overcoming of deadness right. through the Holy Spirit doing that mm-hmm. internal work. So, what is verse fourteen actually arguing? I mean, what, based upon Paul's final argument, what is? you know what what is he saying in, in verse 14 about the natural person not mm-hmm. having the ability to understand spiritual truths what's his what's his what's the exegetical conclusion well, I
1: mean the conclusion is is well what paul's communicating here is total inability that uh, once again ap- apart from uh, God's effectual calling God's effectual grace uh the natural man which is how we come into this world fallen and sinful in Adam is something that Flowers just seem to not like the idea of, uh, but it's 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 biblical. It's there. Uh, apart from God's work, we will continue to view the gospel as foolishness and in a stumbling block. So God must break in, so to speak. He must give us a new heart, a new mind, a new nature, so that we may uh, love what He loves and 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 believe. you know, after him and and follow after him and embrace him, that, that would be
0: my understanding of it. And let me give it, let me ask, I would ask this question to Leighton if he was here. Why is the message of the cross foolishness? If the message in and of itself is sufficient to enable a response, why is it foolish once it's, once it's been given to somebody? How do you think he would respond to that?
1: Uh, Honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure I understand your question exactly.
0: Well, okay, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Okay, so the message of the cross is preached. The person gets the mm-hmm. information. The person hears the message of the cross. They get the information. They know they need to be saved. Why, if it's sufficient to enable a response, okay. why does that person find okay, it foolish? Why does that person right. find it foolish um, and, and versus why do mm. they accept it? I mean, I guess his answer would be exactly. libertarian. Yeah, free ultimately will. It comes it comes and right he, back to the will of man. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so even Paul here is talking about the message itself being, um, you know, foolishness. Whereas it's not just information that somebody needs. Um, it's talking about deeply spiritual rebellion in you know the natural person. He uses terms like the natural person. Um, uh, you know, other places he talks about a person that's in the flesh. Again, it's a deeply spiritual problem that lost people have, and it's not just that they need information. They don't need the laundry list. They don't need the the warning that the you know I think it was the dryer recall (laughs) or or something like that. Um, They need the Holy Spirit to actually do that. In his response,
1: he's like, "Does the grocery list?" is it more gracious and powerful than the gospel? Does a history book or the Quran, is that more powerful and gracious than the gospel that, that people can believe those things, but not the gospel. And I I can't, when I hear that, I I can't help, but shake my head in, in, in horror really. Um, Because what it is, is it's, it, it demonstrates that flowers has a woefully deficient biblical anthropology. And He's he's mixing apples for oranges. And the reason why, uh, for example, uh, many people flock to the Quran and not the Bible, and that just proves our point, Once again, it's because of a moral inability. It, it's because of the fallenness of man because they've believed the lie, not the truth. So man comes up with all kinds of religions to satisfy their, their curiosities and their cravings and whatnot. As long as they don't have God, until God comes and and effectually uh, uh, um, calls them and works that grace in them to bring them uh, to repentance and faith, and the gospel is the means by which the Holy Spirit works that regeneration and that calling.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point, and I think one thing maybe you know as we draw this to a conclusion is I, I wonder, and I've addressed this before. I think Leighton Flowers has a simplistic or truncated or, um, I guess, lower view of conversion. Uh, For him, it's more admitting that you need something, you know, admitting that you need help, admitting that you need saved. Um, It's more just admitting that this is what you need, um, as opposed to what the Bible talks about is actual conversion, which is where a change of nature that God gives you. I mean, changes your nature from being in bondage to sin to liberating that and actually Mm -hmm. giving you the gifts to be able to not just admit, but actually to repent and to fully trust and believe. Um, And so, again, every time I hear him talk about it, it's more in terms of admitting that you need help once the information is given to you. And before Mm -hmm. you didn't know you needed help, but now that you know you need help, admit that help. And then, you know, use your libertarian free will to accept the help. Uh, again, I think it's, it's it's a misunderstanding of anthropology, conversion, right. the nature of saving faith, the way the Holy Spirit works through um, you know, regeneristic means. I, I just think there's a lot of confusion. Well, Drew, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Is there anything else you want to say um, as you've you've got time to think through this? And we've kind of we kind of feel like we've gone all over the <laughs> map. But, um, you know, hopefully this has been helpful to our listeners. And um, mm-hmm. I, I hope I hope if Layton does r- decide to respond to this, that he does understand we're doing this in kind. It's not an intention to be malicious. We're just trying to understand better. Um, Mm -hmm. the traditional Southern Baptist view. We're trying to look at it exegetically. We're trying to um, just just be good Bereans and try to search the scriptures. But would you have anything you want to add as we close out our time?
1: Well, I mean, I I think we've pretty much exhausted um, everything uh, that we wanted to touch on, Um, but I'm sure obviously, you know, Flowers is going to provide a response, which of course is is encouraged. And um, so all I can say is I look forward to um, continually interacting with, uh, flowers and, uh, to also, uh, continue doing this with you perhaps in the future.
0: Yeah, Drew, I really appreciate it. I've appreciated our interaction. Um, you've definitely got a great grasp on theology. Uh, you definitely have a, you're articulate, you have a great mind. Um, you're, you're thinking through these issues. Um, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, the time that you put in to not just um, mischaracterize the other side, but to really try to understand. And I think I think in this day and age, it's very, very important with all of the stuff that's going on amongst Calvinists and non-Calvinists and traditional Southern Baptists and everything. It's very, very easy to um, mischaracterize, to throw up straw men, to um, vilify to anathematize others and not to actually interact with what the other side is actually believing or saying. And I think right. from my inter- interactions with you, I think you've done a great job in trying to do that. You've been cordial and that's kind of been my goal as well. And so um, I think we're like-minded in that. And I really appreciate your heart and your attempt to, to do that faithfully.
1: Yeah. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate it. And um, I, you know, the, the same to you. Um, yeah. And I've been listening to to your podcast and I see the same attitude and and the same uh, um, solid uh, grasp of scripture. And so it's been really edifying to, to hear you uh, preach and teach God's word. And
0: so I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Drew. I, I appreciate those kind words and thanks for being on the podcast, taking time out of your day to do that. Thank you. I really appreciate you doing that. So, well, thank you listeners for Listening to Understanding Christianity, I hope this has been helpful to you. I hope you have a very Merry Christmas as the the date is quickly approaching. Um, If you could do us a favor and go to iTunes and give us a positive review and rating, that would really help us. Uh, You can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page as well as go to seancole.net where there's more resources and contact information. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas for a future podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. So have a Merry Christmas. May the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. And would you always keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.